Hello and welcome everyone to another EventRight live stream. We're going to do a whole hour of question and answer on licensing. Licensing being the most amazing way to bring your product to market in that you don't need to raise money. It's the big company's money you license to. You don't need to hire employees. It's their employees. And you don't need to try to get distribution. They're already in all the stores you want to be. So that's what's great about licensing. That's what we're talking about here today. Nothing wrong with starting your own company and selling a product yourself, but it is not right for most inventors. Most people don't have the money or the time or the crazy amount of energy that it takes to do that or the desire. They just want to work on their inventions. So when you're licensing, it makes it a lot simpler. It's still work, though, guys. Not saying it's not any work. Um, great. Ethan, thanks for typing in. I always ask people to hear me. He already took care of that. So we are good. My name is Andrew Kraus. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key 23 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. We've had students in over 65 countries. You should check out our holiday gift guide on InventRight.com. There's a bunch of our students there that have licensed products with products currently on the market that you can buy for your loved ones, and we're supporting them. And it's also a testament, of course, to just some of our students that have licensed products, and there's a ton of them on there. Um, okay, so uh, let's jump in, start doing some Q&A. Uh, if you guys could type your questions into the, into the chat, that would be great. Let's start off with uh, Matt Miller. Hello, Andrew. I tried to submit an idea to Black & Decker. They just emailed me back saying they only take ideas with utility patents. How old school are they? Is there anything I can say uh, that would help me get my idea across to them? Thank you once again, Andrew, for another exciting Monday. Have a great day. Okay. Um, and Stephen and I have said this publicly eons ago. We're not saying it about any particular company, but any company that expects you to have an issued utility patent, you know, to, to file a patent, sit around waiting one to three years for it to issue, and then try to license it, is freaking archaic, okay? I'm going to say it right, right here, right now. A patent pending status is fine. A provisional patent is fine. Um, much better to get a provisional, $75 if you use our Smart IP software, because that's the, the Smart IP software is only 100 bucks, but to file a provisional patent is only $75. So a company that expects you have an issued utility patent that's really, really old school. Matt said it really well. He's probably heard us say that before, too, is my guess. Um, they're not interested. A company that expects that is not interested. Now, there are some tool companies. I'm not going to go into details. We're on their site. It says they're not open to ideas, but I've had students of ours get into some marketing managers for them. Um, not talking about the company you mentioned, Matt, but just particular tool companies. And the marketing manager, you know, they get to the marketing manager on LinkedIn and can I send you my new product? It's uh, I think it'd be a good right match for your, your company. I'm looking to license it. Oh yeah, I'll take a look at it. So don't always assume that whatever you see on their sites, a brick wall and that you can't uh, figure out ways around it. Cause there quite often are possible ways around it. Um, and it's just kind of old school. It's not really typical or, or common. You will see it sometimes. Um, and that's definitely not a reason to run out and spend $10,000 on a patent, guys. Craziness. Um, what if you want to change something? Spend 10 grand on a patent and now you want to change something? Are you spend another 10 grand on a patent? Spend 75 bucks on a provisional. Talk to the company. They, they realize, that, well, we like this, but we don't like this about it. You make a change. 
then you file the utility patent once you do the licensing deal. So thank you, Matt. Um, now, sometimes when people get upset about this, it's big companies like the company you mentioned, Matt. And when I take a look at the product, I'm like, oh my God, you got like 20 other companies here. Why are you obsessing over this one company? Well, I know why, because it's a really big company. It's one you really know well. But if they have a submission policy that says you have to have an issued patent, does that mean you should go out and spend $10,000 on it? No, like I said earlier. So um, let's move on. Uh, Dolphins is the next person is their handle. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, what can I do if I forget to include information in my P? I'm not going to read his whole handle. Well, I'll do it anyway. He write his handle is Dolphins are perverts. So I think that's funny. Uh, but so Dolphins are perverts says, uh, what can I do if I forget to include information in my PPA before I filed it? Okay, so file another one. How much does it cost, everybody? Say it out loud at home, $75, okay? So just file another one. You can take that exact same provisional. You can add, let's say it has A and B in it, and you add C. And the first one you filed it two weeks ago, and this one you filed today. Well, if you added C, you'd have protection from a year from the day. And the other one you did two weeks ago, that has A and B in it, you'll have protection from two weeks ago for a year if you later file a full utility, of course. But it's a it's a placeholder. It's a stake in the sand. Say, if I later file a utility, I'm protected from this date. Okay. Um, I got I got I moved my mic a little bit closer, so hopefully it's kind of weird having it up there, but hopefully it gives us decent audio. Um, I should probably put it over here, but well, that's where I'm reading the questions. Anyway. Um, Andrew thinking out loud. You guys answer my questions, goddammit. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Miriam's art. Hello, Andrew. I'm Alex live in the UK. Great. I'm glad you're not dead in the UK. That's always good. Um, although for you, it's about 12.08. So it's about midnight for you. So thank you. I'm flattered you're staying up late for me um, or for yourself to get questions answered, hopefully. Can you help me find the best way to license my idea to IKEA? Please, in all capitals, thanks for your attention. Okay. Um, last time I checked, which for, for IKEA in particular, has probably been about a year and a half, two years. But last time I checked, IKEA is not open to licensing at all. Would I say go ahead and try to submit and see what they say? Yeah, because that might have changed last year and a half. I may have coaches that are working with students that they, they sent in and maybe they're accepting them now, but they're not open. But if you have an idea for IKEA, it's probably right for a bunch of other companies too. So don't get too obsessed. You None of you guys should be working on, I'm exaggerating to make a point here. You shouldn't be working on any products if you think it's just for one company. Now, if you're just new to it and you don't realize that I should try to make a list of 20 or 30, most, Andrew says most InventRight students are for most projects are reaching out to 20 or 30. Yeah, some you might only have eight or 12. But if you don't know how to make your list, your list is going to be anemic. And one company is freaking ridiculous. You should never work on a project that's just for one company. So my guess is Miriam's art is your handle. That if you take a look at that product, it could definitely fit with a lot of other manufacturers. That IKEA is not your only company. You're new to this. They're obvious. They're right in front of your face. They're huge. They're big. The last time I checked, they're not open unless they change that. They're not open to licensing. Um, but there's going to be a ton of other companies that are that could be on your list. Uh, Musta is Senga. Senga, I'm hopefully pronouncing it right. I've seen Musta on here quite a bit from time to time. Hi, Andrew. Can you open up Smart IP service a little bit? What is the benefit of it? 
Um, what is the difference of a PPA filing with or without smart IP? Okay. Um, thank you. You're like prompting me to give a sales pitch or something. Sorry. But so we have a program called smart IP. Our students get it unlimited use while they're a student. They can write as many provisional patents as they want. And then the public, though, you can go on the website and you can get it for $99. And that's going to guide you on filing your provisional patent with the wording. But I'm going to tell you something that's free that you don't need smart IP for. But when you combine it along with smart IP, you're going to do a kick-ass job with your provisional patent. And I've said this before that 80% of filing a good provisional patent is just simply being an inventor, being creative. So you want to look at all the workarounds, variations, improvements for your product. You can't just go, here's my invention, I'll protect this. You got to think about what are the other ways that are 70, 80, 90%, just as good, but not the version you're pitching. Throw all that into your provisional pad. If it has a hinge over here, could it be on the right? Could it be on the left? Could it be not be a hinge? Could it be something else? You know, don't get too obsessed about it, but you want to cover all those variations. And so that's why a lot of patents are weak to junk because inventors didn't do that. The attorney didn't force them. And even ones that companies file quite often aren't that good. And you can work right around them. Then people are like, well, but people can work around me. No, not if you just did what we what I just said. Think about the variations, workarounds, improvements. Don't get obsessive. Don't throw a version that's 50% as good in your PPA. It's 50% as good. If your product was on the shelf right next to another product and literally nobody bought by this other version of your product because it just sucks that bad compared to this one. It's not, you shouldn't be obsessing and putting that in your PPA. Um, a while back, we asked permission from a bunch of our students and they sent us their PPAs. They filed with Smart IP. And then we sent that to a patent attorney and the patent attorney is like, holy cow, this is so much better than what I normally see from inventors. So to answer your question, Musta, about the difference in filing a PPA with or without Smart IP, um, it's, it's night and day. I've seen a lot of really, really poor provisional patents just done horribly. Um, you want to do a good job with it. So, but I would say Smart IP is only about half of it. The other half is free for anybody to have right now based on my suggestion. Include the variations, workarounds, improvements. Think about how else it could be done. A lot of us, once we've been thinking about an idea for a long time, it becomes fixed in our head as to what it is. And then you can't, and that's fine if you study the marketplace and you're going to put that in your sell sheet. But for your provisional patent, you got to think about what else it could be. Okay. So if you think about what else it could be, what's another version? Like knock yourself off, basically. Well, I could do a version that's like this. Okay. It's not quite as good, but, you know, I, they could get around it by doing it this way. Include that. And then the smart IP software guides you very specifically on how to use the wording. Like you check, you check if it's like a, a method or this or that or what type of product it is. And then it kind of guides you. So it's nice. But you should really be doing both. So, yeah, for $99 on our site, I don't know why anybody wouldn't do that. Your, your option, you know, with a patent attorney is going to cost you at least $2,500 to get a provisional done with a patent attorney. We try to reduce people's costs so they can just keep filing as many provisionals as they need. And after you've used Smart IP for a couple times, you, you should be able to do it on your own after that, too. You kind of get the format. Um. Mikey, how can someone get a marketing manager's direct phone number and email address 
if the gatekeeper won't give it because they won't respond on LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, a lot of times just I'll give you one technique. You know, if you can see what if you see if you. So first of all, good on you, Mike, for using LinkedIn. You got the company name. You did your research. You realize, OK, this is a company I want to license to. You went on to LinkedIn. You see a bunch of names of marketing managers for that work in that company. Right. And you got a name now, let's say Bob Smith. OK, so now, you know, his name is Bob Smith. Well, if you go on the company website or you look it up using some different techniques, you could probably you might find that for this particular company, it's first name dot last name at XYZ company. And you have their email address. That's just one of many techniques that we teach our students. So if you can get the format of the email address for the company and you know their name, you're like 85 percent there already. OK, so that's just one one way to do it. There's a lot of other ways to do it, too. Uh, Derek Dunbar, curiosity question. Have you ever had a student with an idea that you said there is no way this will work and then ends up being pretty successful? OK, so when students come aboard with us, we're always honest with them. So but it's not our personal opinion because that's not that's not really useful. It's our opinion at our coach's opinion based on facts, based on the marketplace. You have to look at what, everything that's in the marketplace. And then you got to go, how does my product fit in? And yeah, I mean, hell yeah. Or do we sometimes see that this person hasn't done their research or they're not observing different things about different products? And we go, okay, now we know the space. Let's say it's a kitchen cutting board. It has this new feature. And we, we guide the student to do that research, come back. The coach and the student are looking at it together. And they realize that, oh, it's really not any different than this product, or it doesn't really have an extra oomph. It's not like, it's not shining amongst these other ones. Sometimes it'll fit in between two groups. Sometimes, oh, it'll fit in this group, but we're going to give it a little extra something. Maybe it already has that. Maybe it doesn't. So a big part of inventing is to keep inventing. So when you study the marketplace and you realize it needs to be something more, um, our coaches all the time will guide the student to make it something more. Look, we don't, you don't really have that unique point of difference. And then the coach and the student will brainstorm and they'll, they'll give it a better point of difference, either from a marking perspective or the actual product itself. So do, do we help our students refine their product to make it more marketable? Hell yeah. Yeah, we do that. Um, do some students not like to hear that? Yeah. You know, oh, well, but I just like, because sometimes inventors have been thinking about it for a while. It becomes fixed in your head as to it's like this, you know, and then you don't want to change it. But when the coach lays it out and go, well, here's the marketplace and the student's doing that research along with them. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're putting it right in front of me. I, I, I need to make a tweak here, tweak there. Um, but let's get back more specifically to um, and that's a big part of one of many reasons why our students succeed because they actually reach out to companies. But if you're reaching out to companies and whatever you're sending isn't right, or a marketing manager goes, well, How is this any better than that product? You know, you got to do that ahead of time. All right. So, but um, the specific question Derek had is um, Have you ever had a student with an idea you said there is no way this will work and then it ends up being pretty successful? So our, we need as a coach to show the student the marketplace and the student needs to research the marketplace and see how it fits in. Um, but even after that, if we had some students that are like, 
we have students like, oh, amazing products. Hey, a pretty good product. Yeah, it makes sense. And then we have students like, it's like, oh, yeah, it has a little bit benefit. And it's amazing. Sometimes you'll get a student that will license something. And it's like, yeah, it had a little benefit. But and we we made sure here's the thing we do. We got to make sure the students putting their best foot forward with their marketing piece, with their sell sheet, because you sent it to 30 companies and the marketing sucks. It's in the product doesn't make any sense. You're just wasting your time. Um, and that they're reaching out to all the companies and not giving up until they get a no, right? They might need to reach out to some companies four or five times. Another person earlier was a little frustrated, couldn't get the right person on LinkedIn. We do Our students do not give up until they're done with that list. And you're not done with the list until you get a no from everybody. And okay, maybe there's like out of 30 companies, there's three companies. You tried everything like eight times. You can't get a hold of anybody. And all this reach outreach is not difficult via email. And LinkedIn phone's a little bit more difficult, but we suggest people use all three. Um, but if we have products that weren't quite as exciting, you know, as this other product, and, and we'll see one student license a product that's like, oh my God, even we were kind of surprised they licensed that. But because we helped put their best foot forward with the marketing, they license it. And then we got another student over here. Wow, that's just an amazing product. And they don't license it. So you just, you never know. You got to put your best foot forward, and but they maybe license their next one. You got to put your best foot forward, the marketing and the effort and the outreach. And then it's up to the companies as to whether or not they're interested. You know, um, I just did a YouTube video, which will probably be out later this week. I still need to send it to our IT guy. To, to, at, well, there's no editing. I just put it up. And I interviewed our, our uh, one of our coaches, April. And we talked about reworking products. Let's say you reached out to 30 companies and you got no's or making changes. And there's in that video, we talk about there's a couple changes you can make. One, you can make no change and you can just resubmit it six or eight months later. We get students licensed all the time that way. We're like, well, why would I want to do that, Andrew? Not with companies that gave you reasons why not, but sometimes if they said, not this time, not a right match or something, you're just going to resend that same shell sheet six or eight months later. Some of them might have been interested, but they're too busy. I got too many projects. And if I tell them I'm interested, then and this will probably drive some of you guys crazy, then I know they'll never go away. So they said, no, not at this time or something like that, right? So the next time you reach out to them, maybe you get lucky with one or two and their boss said two weeks earlier, we need new products. So that's why the first technique we talk about in that video, I'm gonna give away the main things here right on the live stream, is you can reach back out with the exact same sell sheet, exact same companies, and you can license it. Second thing is you can just change the marketing materials. You realize they weren't perceiving things right and now you're going to change the marketing materials. Most inventors never do any of these three things, okay? Um, so you're going to change the marketing materials and you're going to resubmit. The third thing is to actually change the product. So she was talking about, April, one of our coaches, how much easier it is just to go back products she didn't license and go, hey, you know, I think I'm going to rework this a little bit and or a fair amount and change what the product is, rework the sell sheet and resend it out. So those are three things you can do to um, resubmit your product to the same companies you sent to before. And you got to know when that's appropriate and not. But it's April was saying it to a good, you rarely put your project in the garbage can. You put it on the shelf or maybe you just rejigger it right away and you rethink it and then you send it on back out with a different version. But one of the things she talked about, which drives me nuts, you never, ever argue with a marketing manager at a company arguing, oh my God, that's just, you're burning a bridge. So they're not going to want to receive more ideas from you or they're going to ignore you next time. So don't do that. So 
Um, Derek, have we had students that were kind of even we were amazed that the student was able to license it? Yes, we have. We were like, we were scratching our head, but it, it has to have some sort of benefit or fun or whatever. If it's novelty, it doesn't have to be, you know, benefit utility and functionality, but fun or something like that. But um, it's got to have that. It's got to have something over what else is in the marketplace. We would not let our students work on something. It didn't have something you know, where, where somebody didn't have some sort of perception. But sometimes it's a trip. Sometimes it's small companies. Um, it's Sorry, it's a small change. That Sorry, I email popping up. It distracted me. Sometimes it's a small change. Some companies, oh, we just like this small change because these ones, these products are already selling and you're making this small change. It could be a little leg up on the competition. And then other ones, they're like, and that needs to be kind of significant. Every company is different and you'll never know. You just got to submit and find out what they're looking for. But don't ever think it's too small of a change if it's going to offer them something extra to offer their customers. Some companies won't like that. Other companies want big changes, but you can license both products that are like, whoa, really cool, so different. And you can also license products that are like, yeah, that's really, that's useful. It's like, it's a slight change. You know, you can do both. Um, Margie said, hi, Andrew. Sent my sell sheet, sell video to a marketing manager with his permission. Great. You always want to ask permission, guys. With no response after 10 days, that's very normal. So I followed up, received a few days later that he sent the video to the development team and would get back to me as soon as he heard from them. Great. That was November 7th. Okay. What is today? December 12th. So that's about a month. Um, and I haven't heard back. I'm going to email again, but what do you suggest I say this time? So first off, when, when you, so he's going to send this to development team. I don't think you did anything wrong. Um, and I don't think you really needed at that point to ask for a timeline or what have you. He kind of told you specifically he was going to send it to. I would just follow again, follow up, and I would ask, I would offer help. So instead of being perceived as a pest, you know, restate, show them, show them what you sent. So that email that you sent where you submitted to them, like click the forward button, change the subject line, let him see everything below so he can see for sure, not just you saying it that you sent it to him on November 7th. And then say, I sent you um, my marketing materials on November 7th. You were forwarding to the your development team you wrote. And I just want to check in with you, see if there's any questions that I can answer, if I can be of assistance in any area. Please let me know if you need clarification on anything. And um, please let me know where things are. And just keep it really short like that. And so, but always offer to help. It's really nice. Really, really nice. So let's see. Um, Hughes says, uh, oh, this is Sarah. Is her real name? Uh, Hi, Andrew. Do companies typically prefer to license an in, to an individual or a company? Any pros and cons on either? They don't care. There is some like corporate to corporate licensing. That's a different thing than what we're teaching you guys is grassroots licensing direct from the inventor to the company. They companies in the United States or any European or Asian companies or any companies that are big in the United States, they don't care. 
They just want a good idea. They're not asking you for your portfolio. What have you done before? Who are you? Why should we talk to you? We're this big company. You're just this little inventor. That's what I think a lot of people worry about. And it's just simply 100% not true. And that's a 23-year case study. We've been doing this for 23 years. It is not true. Um, so just have a professional email signature, you know, your name, your email, your phone number, um, you know, title, product developer, you know, Bob Smith or Sarah, let's say Sarah at, let's say, let's say your last name's Smith, Sarah Smith designs at Gmail. That's your email. You got a phone number because ring your cell. That's fine. Um, as long as you're acting professional, that's fine. And what you send is professional. It doesn't matter if you're a company or an individual. They don't care. Individual, um, I don't know, 95% of our students don't have a company. They're just licensing direct as, as the inventor. So it's very normal. Don't worry about that. Um, let's see. C. Molina, Molina is the handle. Um, hello, is it possible to license an idea, a feature to add to an existing packaging? Yes, you can license a product that adds to existing packaging. And it's particularly great if that packaging is on many, many different products. Um, packaging innovations or other co-founder, Stephen Key, he is an expert. He's licensed many packaging innovations. Um, packaging is an interesting category in that it's brutal but you can also make a lot of money. So they sell bazillions of units when they're selling packaging, right? It's like not actually bazillions, but the volume is very, very high with most packaging products. So, um, you know, you, you need to be, with packaging inventions, you need more. So if you add some packaging, if you add one cent or five cents or 10 cents, too much. If you can do that same packaging with the new benefit, and it doesn't add one cent to their costs, that's killer, okay? But then on top of that, you need to understand the manufacturing of it. That's not true. You got a new kitchen cutting board, you got this or that. You can just look at similar products and you know that they can make it and you're pretty sure they can make it a reasonable price. But with a packaging product, people come up with stuff, but could the machine cut the package like this? Could it do this or that? Very, very important. Because you're basically in, you're in, and, and the volume is so high. That's why some companies, if you added two cents to the package, they'd be like, oh my God, no, we sell 3 million of these a year or whatever it is, that's going to hurt a profit margin. Other products, sometimes they can tolerate, but packaging in general, they can't tolerate any huge price increases. If it has enough benefit, it might make sense. It's a higher price point product. So you need to understand manufacturing more and you need to be able to do it at a reasonable price. And it needs to have a clear benefit. So can you license and have we guided people in that area? Absolutely, you can do that. Is it harder than a kitchen cutting board or an automotive product or a gardening trowel? Yes, it will be harder. Any packaging product will be substantially harder. A lot of people go, well, it's easy. Here's my change. It's like, yeah, but can the machine do that? Okay, and that's not something you really need to worry a lot about with a consumer product because you can look at similar things and make assumptions that it can be made. So um, you don't need to get into manufacturing with, um, with consumer products quite often, but with packaging products, you need to pretty much every time. So that makes it more difficult, as you can imagine, if you're not a packaging expert. Um, let's see. Okay, Scrappy Childhood, that's, that's their handle. 
I have a twin extra large bed idea that does not exist in the market. What should I do with the idea? Well, I would, Scrappy, I would suggest that you license it because when you license it to a company that's making either twin, I'm assuming it's a mattress or it's the frame or it's something to do with twin beds, that's what they do. So let them invest the money, let them use their employees, let them use it in the existing distribution. Licensing and what we guide people to do is way more attractive than that silly show Shark Tank because you're getting the money, the workforce, and the distribution. And that company you license to, like one of our coaches licensed a wrench to a company who has over 10,000 products. 10,000. Okay. Now, most companies don't have that. Let's say the company's scrappy um, approaches with this twin extra large or large bed idea. Let's say they have 200 products, 50 products, 300 products, but they have relationships with all those retailers. Retailers don't want to talk to you guys. They don't want to talk to um, inventors they might not deliver on time, have cash flow issues. They're not going to buy from you. They don't want to buy from you. It's possible, but it's brutal. Now, if you license to a big company, they're going to take care of that for you because they already have those relationships. They already have the money. They already have the employees. It's just you just plug it into that machine. They're like a machine. So if they're doing bed-related stuff, they're a machine there, and it's just one more product in their product line. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And, and then you're, they're, they're taking all the financial risks and they're paying you a royalty for every unit. So Scrappy, I don't know if you're new, but if you're new to licensing, watch more of our channel. I'm going to remind everybody to subscribe down below too. If you're not subscribed and click on the notification button. And I forget on the live stream. I always forget to check. I need to watch somebody else's live stream. If somebody could type in, is there a thumbs up button too for the live stream? I'm not sure if you guys could type in and I'll read it later. And let me know. Um, and then just watch more of our videos too. And then if you need help, you can go to InventRight. We've been coaching and mentoring inventors for, for 23 years, really long time. Uh, let's see. Uh, Sarah said, hi, Andrew. I'm using Smart IP to construct my PPA for the drawings. The example provides descriptions for figures. When I label, well, let me see. So she's using our Smart IP solution. When I label all the parts within a figure number, uh, is it appropriate to then include it in the description? Uh, yeah, so there are no formal requirements for a PPA, guys. You can do it however you want. It's it's definitely good to include it in the description. The more articulate you can be in describing this feature or that feature is, is a good thing, anything that has functionality and utility. So if you, you definitely want to define your drawings without a doubt, so um, let's see. Alex says, I have a question. What happens your what happens if your product idea hasn't been sold in retail in in good amount? I think will they refuse product and return to manufacturer? Will manufacturer make you to compensate expenses? Okay. No, no. When you license a product, guys. All that financial risk is off on the company you license to. They're not going to. So if they manufactured, I think this is what he's getting at, Alex. If they manufactured 5,000 units and for some reason, like they could only sell 2,500 and they're like, this isn't working out. What he's asking, I believe, is, is that financial burden going to come back on you? Absolutely not. Um, we would never let any of our students sign an agreement that would agree to that sort of thing. They're taking the financial risk, not you. 
that would not come back on you. You're not responsible for any manufacturing whatsoever. Um, they're responsible for all that. And if they don't perform after a period of time, you can take it back. So you're not selling. You never want to say, I want to sell you my patent or I want to sell you my invention. You want to license it, which means, basically means to rent or lease it. So you're, you're going to get it back if they don't perform, which puts a lot of inventors at ease. Um, I've talked to inventors outside InventRight. I think I mentioned this before, where they just signed. First of all, they made a giant mistake. They just signed whatever agreement the company sent them. I'm like, oh, my God, in 23 years, I've never had a negotiation coach ever tell a student, this is good. What they sent, sign it. You always have to change it. So that's a little tip there. Never just sign an agreement you get. Um, but in that agreement, you now I lost my train of thought there. In that agreement, you you you're you have the right to take it back if they don't sell so much every quarter you have the right to take it back oh now i remember what i was getting to i've talked to people in public where they just go ahead and sign the agreement and i'm like and this is craziness i, I don't know they i'm sorry this is just stupid um i asked them well where, where does the company you license to sell what stores and they couldn't tell me i'm like so you did a licensing deal with a company you didn't know every store that they're in you didn't understand their business before you signed a contract with them and they're like, oh, I guess not. I'm like, what? And then they're complaining that the product's not in the market. I'm like, did you even evaluate this company? We're just so excited that they were going to license your product that you're like, okay, I'll sign. And then they're complaining that two or three years later, they got nothing on the market. Well, that's because you didn't vet them. That doesn't happen to our students. You always have a right to take it back if they don't perform. And you don't do deals if you don't think they're going to perform. You've got to evaluate. You've got to know how to interview them and evaluate. Um, these aren't InventRight students. These are just people I've talked to and, oh, I'm in a licensing deal, but it's been three years and they're not paying me yet. And I'm like, is the product in the market? No. I'm like, okay, there's something wrong there. Um, that won't happen to you guys if you're smart. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. Hughes said, or Sarah, uh, hi, Andrew, what is the max amount of time the demo video should be? And should you include your contact information on one of the slides. So you should always, whenever you send a demo video, you should have, um, we call it a sell sheet video sometimes. You should always, you, you're gonna have your contact information in the email and then you're linking to the video, right? Our students do unlisted YouTube videos. You don't want private and you don't want public. You want unlisted. So private, you need to know their YouTube username. How are you gonna know a Marketing manager's YouTube username. They'll have no idea what that is. That's not practical for these purposes. And then public, you definitely don't want to make public disclosure. Um, unlisted basically means that only people with the link can look at it. So it's essentially like a password. Like you're going to put that email in the email. You're going to put the link to the YouTube video and it's unlisted. Only people with the link can see it. And if they want to share around the company, that's what you want. Of course, you're going to file a provisional before you do any of that um, provisional pen. Um, but what... What Sarah is asking is how long it should be. Really, it should not be longer than 60 seconds. I've made a few exceptions where I'm like, okay, 90 seconds is fine. It should never be longer than 60 seconds, really. Um, so you don't want to lose them in the first 10, 15 seconds. People like watching videos so that they watch the rest of it. If you're like, hi, my name's Bob, and I, my family says I come up with a lot of inventions. You lost them, okay? Don't do any of that crap. Um, and then if you have a sell sheet, which most of our students do, you, you need to get it in like six seconds. Like a sell sheet's a one-page advertisement for your product. They need to get it really quickly. Video, you don't want to lose them in the first 10 or 15 seconds. 
and you shouldn't be longer than 60. So hopefully that's helpful, Sarah. And do not publicly disclose your invention. Do not put that video up publicly. Unlisted is not public with YouTube. Okay. Uh, LV is their handle. I have an idea about a device for household, but I don't know how electrical mechanism works. What do you do with that? Okay. So a lot of times you can just look at similar things and go, well, I, I know I can't do this. I'm not an electrician. I wouldn't know how to create that circuit board, but there's this thing over here and it, well, let's just make something up. It has a timer in time. Well, your product is a timer too, you know, simplifying, but, but sometimes you don't need to understand all that. Um, that's something that our students will work with the coaches on to kind of look at looking at the marketplace will help you figure out these issues. Most of our students do not have an engineering background. They don't have a technical background and they're able to figure this out. And so can you. So um, but you do need to figure out if, if that you said it's a device for the household, but you don't know how the electrical mechanism works. So let's say that mechanism is in another product. But that mechanism is, is just part of your product and your new invention is like another piece of it, right? So if you see that they have that mechanism and it's working in another product, like there's no more research for you to do. But now that might not be the case and you might need to do more research. So just by looking at things in the marketplace, you can quite often, I can. Um, but don't be coming up with really crazy stuff like, Oh, okay. Well, this arm will come out. It's a it's a robotic arm, and it'll open up the stove for you, and then pull the pan out and put it on the countertop. And you know nothing about robotics. Don't be coming up with stuff like that. But if it's practical, unless you're an expert at robotics, so you got to be practical and you got to do some research. If you came up with that, then do your research. Okay, but that's getting a little like, okay, I'm not a super technical person. Should I be inventing something super technical? But you don't need to under, you could be inventing something technical, but your piece of it is not. You know what I mean? Your piece of it is not super technical and you don't even understand how this whole other thing works and you don't need to. But now we're just talking, we're not going to start sharing. Don't make any public disclosure of anything live on this stream, but we're not, in order to really figure that out, you need to be showing that's where the coaching comes in. You can talk to the person about their particular product. You can't do that on here, you know. Um, oh, uh, Mike says, uh, what did inventors do before? We've been around 23 years and in our early days, oh, it says my connection's unstable. Hopefully it will, there we go. It came back. Sorry if it cut out there for a second. I don't know if it did. It just said my connection's unstable. In the early days of InventRight 23 years ago, we were having people mail their sell sheet. I'm not kidding. And the question was, oh, Andrew, would it be okay? Could I send a fax? And I was like, nah, you know, it's going to look black and white. It's not going to look very good. So we've been doing this for a really long time. And I would say what I really love about the internet, I wish I could say this, but less inventors are getting hosed by invention promotion companies because you can Google these companies now. And so I think a lot more inventors were taken advantage of by invention promotion companies that said, oh, you don't have to do anything. We'll do it all for you. And then a year later, they got nothing to show for it. And I don't think that's happening as much now, um, but unfortunately it's still happening. There's always a green person that doesn't want to do any work or whatever. And somebody's telling them what they want to hear. Um, so, but yeah, it was, it was a lot harder. You guys have it easier than anybody in the history of inventions with 
the ability to get information, the ability to get, there was no LinkedIn, you know, the, the ability to get a hold of people, you know, it was, it was a lot harder guys. It really was. Um, Charles says, uh, should I inquire about contract manufacturing in India since so many handicraft tools are made there and sold in North America? No, you're not, you're not reaching out to contract manufacturers in Asia or in India. I know India is part of Asia, but you're not, you're not doing that. You're reaching out to the companies that are in the retailers where you want to be let them reach out to their contract manufacturers because they'll want to check on and make sure they can get a reasonable price for the product. No company is going to license your product until they've done that. And there's always a waiting game for that, which is great. That's when you know, wow, they're taking the time to go to their contract manufacturer in Asia to make sure the pricing is good. That's when you know you're doing pretty good when that happens, which our students get that all the time. Uh, but no, I would not reach out to a contract manufacturer in Asia. I would be very careful about not doing that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Um, let's see. Uh, another one. Got it paged up too quick. Uh, Mike is as another one. I wish companies would try to go as minimal as possible. Are you listening, Apple? LOL, but not funny. Thanks, InventRight. Um, I don't, I don't know what you mean by that on packaging. Okay. He wrote on packaging. Um, that is okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think that's great. Um, I don't know. I can't, I don't think we can say guys that Amazon's helping with that. I mean, some products companies on Amazon are selling it without the packaging, putting it in the box, but you're still putting it in a box and shipping it. Right. So I don't think Amazon's helping to, save the world probably quite the contrary there but you know a lot of us we buy all our crap on amazon um kind of getting crazy but it is what it is um so yeah i i i think more minimal packaging and i've had some that that brings up a thought sometimes i have students that are very super particular about what they want which is fine what type of company they want to license to I want to only license to a company that does manufacturing in just this way and it's super green or this or that. Or, and, and you can do that. You know, you might limit the amount of companies you can license to, but you can do that if you want. Um, so if you are just really conscious about the amount of packaging that's being used in products, but if you see a company has, let's say, 300 products and you see their packaging, it's just like everybody else. Should you be the one trying to convince them, hey, for my product, you should half the amount of packaging? You know, that's not something I would say early on in a licensing negotiation. You might say, hey, here's the thought. Here's a package for another. Maybe you could do that. Maybe it'd save you money. But companies will pretty much do whatever they already do. So if they're making cheap, really cheap, chintzy products, you know, maybe it's stuff you buy at the dollar store. That's what they're going to do with your product. If they have middle of the road products, that's what they're going to do. If they have super high end products, that's what they're going to do. They could pretty much do what they already do and distribute in the places they already distribute. And the part that's new is your new innovation, right? But to, to try to twist, and this isn't what Mike was saying at all, but to try to twist the company's arm to go green when they're not, or to do something dramatically different or selling these, all this whole new five other stores here that you guys don't sell in probably not going to happen could and you don't want to talk about that stuff early on in negotiations 
because they might decide you're being unrealistic and they might not want to license you just for that reason. So it might be something you bring up later, you know. Um, but if it's important to you, you got to bring it up if that's, you know, but most, most inventors are, okay, I just want to get going with my first product and then I can do that sort of thing. Um, uh, Miss V said, hi, Andrew, if you reach out to more than one marketing manager within the same company and you receive a response to submit your sell sheet, should you send it to all or will that cause conflict? You know, probably only one will respond. Um, I, once you just basically, it's, I'll keep it simple. Multiple could respond, but I would just send it to the first one that says, yeah, send me your sell sheet. And then if another one responds saying, oh, I already sent it over to so-and-so, do you want me to send it to you as well? But I just want to let you know I sent it to them. And then, you know, but I would just say I sent it to them and let them be your superman or superwoman within the company. You don't want like this person to come into a meeting. Hey, I got this. And the other person's like, hey, I got that too. And they're like, oh, this person's messing with us. You're not messing with them if you reach out to multiple marketing managers early on. That's fine. But once they say, yes, send it to me, then stop doing that. Okay. And just be honest and transparent. That's important. I, I just don't see that ever being a problem. I just, we, I, I just don't see it. We see stuff over and over again. I don't see it being a problem. Um, Veronica says, I work full-time for a baby bedding nursery company and have an idea for a new product right now. I'm freelancing with them. Should I show them my concept or pursue other manufacturers? So she's freelancing for them. I don't know what her agreement is that she um, owns whatever she comes up with. Now, she's a freelancer. She's not an employee. Sometimes if you work for, let's say, it's a baby-related you know, product company and you're a full-time employee and you sign in a work, uh, an agreement, a work agreement, that they own any baby stuff you come up with. Now, if they own, if they're trying to own like, you know, a gardening trowel you came up with or a kitchen gadget, and that's not what they do, there's kind of laws against that to a certain extent, like in California and some other states that now say, look, these employment agreements are overreaching. Like that's not going to hurt your business, but you need to read your employment agreement. And if you're a freelancer, if there's any freelance agreement, you need to read it. You're working for them freelance. It might create a weird vibe or it might not. I wouldn't just submit. I would ask your contact person over there, is this appropriate can I send it to you for license? It wouldn't be as a contractor. I'd be licensing it to you. Is that appropriate? Um, if you have a feeling like the company you're freelancing for, they get weird about that, you might send to other companies and not send it to them and keep your relationship clean. But I think just asking is perfectly fine. You know, uh, David says, <clears throat> let's say for sake, I just successfully tested a new novel way to make energy that we call can benefit from, could something like this be licensed? So I got a whole spiel on that with energy inventors. Um, yes, you can license new energy inventions and technologies, um, but you gotta not come across as a wacky inventor. So I've experienced this over the years. I don't get a lot of wacky inventors calling me. I do get them once in a while, but the wackiest of the wacky are energy inventors. Um, they're like, I, this guy like named Scooter and he's like, I, I can run a car off a liter of gas for two years. And I just tell by the way he's talking and everything. I'm like, oh God, okay, this is not right. And then I get another guy. He's like, well, I came up with an idea and I think I could make this more efficient or that more efficient. 
with producing energy or running this or that. And I'm like, what's your background? And he's like, well, I'm an engineer. And I'm like, okay, great. Or he might be like, I'm not an engineer, but I'm really handy. And I do this or that. And I'm kind of like, I work on a, a, I have, I run a farm and I'm always coming up and I'm like, okay, that's valid too. So, but when you make statements about energy inventions, here's the problem. They're going to be like, well, prove it. If you, if you have like, a new kitchen cutting board and you didn't even make a full prototype. They're not going to be like, well, prove it. They can see your virtual prototype. They can see the features of it. There's nothing much more to talk about. But with energy inventions, because there are these wacky inventors and you make these claims, make these claims, companies that are doing stuff in that space, they're like, okay, prove it. All right. So now you need to spend money to build a prototype to prove that your engine can be a little more efficient or the solar is doing this or that, or whatever it is you're doing. Um, so that's more difficult, you know, and now that might actually require some money to prove it, right? Otherwise you come across as a wacky energy inventor. The other energy inventor kind of territory, sometimes energy inventions could be applicable in many different industries in many different ways. So I would say, look for the lowest hanging fruit, the one that's gonna be implementable and implementable. Um, you have the ability to implement it on a simpler scale, and then you can license it to them, limit the license. Maybe you write the license it somewhere else. It's a bigger market, but you're getting them to prove it out, maybe even getting them to pay for the patent, and you have the rights to license in other areas. So there's going to be like, oh, I could use it in a lawnmower. I can use it in an electric dam, or I can use it just to generate solar for my uh, energy for my house. You know, if it's like, just as a random example, guys. I go, oh, damn, you can, is it going to be easier to implement that on a lawnmower? Like, oh, okay, maybe you implement that there and then you expand it. So you always want to go for the lowest hanging fruit that's the easiest to implement rather than necessarily changing the world right away. Um, but you probably need to raise money to do that sort of testing sometimes. So hopefully that was helpful, David. So you can definitely, you know, as long as you're not Scooter that just is crazy, well, actually, I should be saying that because, you know, sometimes I, I get people that that are 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 farm are farm folks. They are some of the most creative people in the world. So I shouldn't be saying that um, because some people work on farms and they're just maybe they're not well educated, but they're just really smart, you know. And I've had some really smart people um, that other people might discount, and I didn't because I just listened to them, and I'm like, this person's smart. I can tell. Um, you don't always want to judge a book by its cover, but somebody acting wacky, it's almost like the energy inventions. You know, I, I can run a car off a liter of gas for two years. It's like the person has the sign that says the world is ending and they're walking around the street. I get some of those guys. So when you are an energy inventor, you need to do everything not to come across, not make statements of grandeur that you need to so that they don't immediately discount you because they might think you're one of those. OK, so you, you need to do a lot more to set yourself up. It's, it's hard with the energy inventions. Um, hi, Andrew. This is from RZL is their handle. We got about seven minutes left. And then I'm going to call it a day. Um, if you guys could do me a favor, we, we, we still got seven minutes left. So I'm going to answer some more questions. If down below you can click um, the subscribe button, the notification button. That's the way to say thank you to me for spending a whole hour to answer your questions. Um, and watch more of our YouTube videos and give them a thumbs up. And like I said before, I need to check. Let's see if anybody typed in that you can give a thumbs up to a live stream. If any of you guys can tell me 
if um oh some folks just forgot to hit the thumbs up yeah i think on the live stream you can hit it not just after the fact now i gotta find my place here let's see where was i all right rzl says hi andrew i know how royalty percentages work for consumer products but from what pricing should be taken from for a hike up price due to the product due to a branded or luxury company if they make a version using gold. Okay. I, I'm first, I'm going to not directly answer your question, but I'm going to say that sometimes you'll license it to a company and a lot of companies do brand licensing. So for instance, Disney does a ton of it where Disney doesn't make most of what you buy from them. They're licensing to put Mickey Mouse on that t-shirt or coffee mug or whatever, or action figure. And there's another company making it. So what they need to do is they need to pay Disney a royalty just for using their name or their or a likeness of one of their characters, right? So if you have an invention and it involves Mickey Mouse, let's say, they're going to need to pay a royalty to Disney and to you. So you should expect a lower royalty, but you should be okay with that because it's freaking Mickey Mouse or whatever, some other more famous thing these days. And so they need to pay a royalty to the company they're licensing from, the, the brand or the character or the name, and also you. So that's kind of very similar to what RZL was saying. But um, what, they're, what they're saying is, let's say you make it in gold or you do a luxury version. I don't know, same royalty, I think, you know, um, I think same royalty, the same normal royalty. Why? So just because I think this will answer your question. Some products might be $500. Some may be five. Some may be 99 cents, you know, but the $500 product, they're probably going to sell less than the $5 product, right? But the $5 product, they're going to sell more. And so it doesn't, I don't think because they're making it out of gold and it's a super expensive product that you're, that would be a real major factor for the royalty to change. I think you could still receive the same royalty. I don't think it needs to be that you need to get a lower royalty. Um, Alexandri, uh, do you kick the tire on prospective companies before you reach with LinkedIn or do you contact 30 companies without too much checking and you only investigate when the deal is in the air? Well, if you're using, if you're a student of ours and we've trained you to make your list of companies, that list of companies you vetted by doing your research and making your list of companies before you get to LinkedIn. And then you're just looking up those companies on LinkedIn. Um, but I do agree with you. I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but I'll say it. I don't think, I think the fact that they're already in a store where you want to be, that's all the vetting you need to do. You don't need to see what kind of dollar figures they do or how many stores they're in. If you reach out to 30 companies and three show interests, do more vetting on those three. Right. But your vetting was already like they're in a major retailer. want to be They're on my list. Good enough. Don't like study 30 companies in depth. That's a waste of time. So hopefully that's helpful, Alexandria. I think I answered it. Um, Tyra said, uh, I have multiple ideas. Good ones. I don't want to actually build them. Just sell ideas. Just got on this channel. That's what we're all about. You license it. You don't have to build anything. You don't have to hire employees. You don't have to raise money. You're, you don't have to get distribution. You don't need to make sales calls. The only outreach you need to do is to the company to do the deal, and then it's all on them. And then you're going to rent your idea to them, which is what licensing is. So Tyra, you're in the right place. 
Um, keep watching the channel and check out our website, inventright.com as well. Um, let's see. LV said, how many companies can licensing an idea at the same time? So I'll give my spiel on that. And, and basically, they can't step on each other's toes. You're not going to license a kitchen cutting board to two different companies selling kitchen cutting boards at Walmart. And they're going to both show up on the same shelf. You're not giving one company advantage over another. But it's not uncommon to break out um, a license by the product. Maybe you got a different version of the product, super low-end product, super high-end product, a different version of the product for a different industry. Maybe you license this company and they're in the U.S. and Canada, but they're not selling in Europe. You hold back on that. Maybe you license somebody else over there in a different, different country, right? Um, you could also be by distribution channel. This one company just sells in in, uh, in um, convenience stores at the checkout stand right next to the cash register. And another company sells somewhere else. And that company's like, yeah, we don't care if you sell there. That's not going to hurt us. You know, so, so, but don't think that, oh, I'm going to license to five companies and I'll make more money that way. And they're all selling the exact same place. That's not going to make sense. That's not a license. You're not giving one a leg up over the other. That doesn't make any sense. So quite often, most of our students will license to one company, but it's not uncommon that that people will be able to do more than one licensing deal. It's not uncommon, but it's not the norm either. Um, and it depends on your product. I have people I'm like, oh, yeah, like I'm looking at this, like you basically got five different products here and then in, in different industries. And then I look at another one. I'm like, no, nah, it's pretty much this one deal. But if it's a really big ass company that has great distribution, don't be greedy. You should be cool with that. And it's just common sense that they don't want you to license their competitors selling on the same shelf. I mean, right. But it's a, it's a common question and I'm glad you asked it. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, MOF 67 underscore WJ. That's their handle. Can you get a provisional patent on the design or actual patent? You can only get a provisional patent. A provisional patent is essentially a utility patent. If you upgrade it to a utility patent later, then you have a utility patent. There is no provisional design patent. Design patents are more affordable than utility patents, but it still costs you a hefty chunk of change, definitely a lot more than the $75 a provisional is. And most often, design patents don't make sense for 98% of you. There are some very clever uses of design patents, but a provisional patent is only 75 bucks. I get people, I mean, this could be a design patent, but why don't you just file the $75 provisional? It might not really be protecting much, but it's going to let you say patent pending on the sell sheet and it creates that perceived protection. So that is advice that I give sometimes in certain situations. Um, <laughs> we just have some funny comments and we'll call it a night. Paula said it would take two years to run that car in a liter of gas to prove that it works. That's funny. I would think you'd be able to run it for a month and go, it only took this much and then you could extrapolate it out, Paula, but because it's so funny as hell, I, I love your question, your, your, your joke. I would probably write the same joke. Um, Mike Repair Stuff said, great reply before to the internet question, how matters did it before, and the packaging reply on minimalism. Um, shared your live stream. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, Okay. Sarah, Aaron said, is it better to make an LLC prior to getting royalties from a company? You always want to file an LLC when you're in the midst of signing a deal, but it's not necessary before. That's not legal advice. 
that's what most of our students do. But you could be in the midst of a deal and go, I'm in a deal right now. Okay, I'll do an LLC. And there's a place called LLCUniversity.com, which I like. Um, really good guy. I think his name's Matt. And just really down to earth. And it shows you step by step in your state how to file an LLC. Is that something I would be focusing on right now? No, I'd be focusing on getting a sell sheet, doing all this other stuff. You can always do that when you're in the midst of a deal. But that's really up to you and your what makes sense for you. Um, Alex, do okay. And then I'm going to call it a day. Do retailers, do retail manufacturers, do retailers manufacture their own products? If there's a logo of Home Depot, do they produce their own products? Makes sense to contact Walmart, HD, et cetera, question mark. Yeah, for the most part, there are a lot of house brands like Mainstays is for Walmart, but they're just trying to reduce costs and generic items. I really wouldn't even bother trying to license to house brands um, to the retailer's brand because they're just trying to reduce costs. They're not looking for innovative things. Now, if you look at a retailer's house brand, you notice they're doing innovative stuff. Okay, go go for it because there's, there's more and more of that. But I've never had one of our students licensed to a house brand. It's possible, but it's a lot less likely. So um, I'm going to type in right here our website. Com. Okay, that's our website. Couple things you want to check out on there. Check out our free resources page. That's amazing. It's free, obviously. Tons of great stuff on there. A whole webinar series, all our 10 steps, ton of other great stuff. Also, consider clicking on the contact us form and uh, link and talking to Dana or Sylvia about how we help. They're super chill. If you're like, hey, I'm just investigating and watching Andrew's live stream, just want to understand how you guys help, um, they won't hound you or anything like that. They're super chill. Um, and then check out our holiday gift guide too that's up on our website with um, products that our students have licensed that are currently on the market that you can buy your loved ones and say, hey, I bought this and inventor licensed this. And hey, I wanna try to license my stuff too. Um, so check that out as well. Thank you everybody. I'm gonna call it a day at a long day. I still got some emails and stuff to do. I hope you guys are having a great day. Take care and keep inventing. See you guys, bye.